Welcome back to the Growth Guide. Today we are with Mike Hoyles. Mike has over 20 years experience in the e-commerce and digital marketing space. Mike brings a wealth of knowledge to online growth and operational change. Mike, thank you so much for being on with us today. Thanks for having me. So the first thing I like to start with is everybody's best piece of entrepreneurial advice that everybody gets, and I'd love to hear yours. Best piece of entrepreneurial advice, I think, would be uh, just to go for it. I, I, I experienced a lot of headwinds when I went independent um, about five years ago. I left a significant career and a, and a, a pretty substantial role at the time um, on an executive team when I, when I decided to go independent. And one of the things that I had to conquer was a, a tremendous amount of, of headwinds from friends, family, you know, the closest people to me, because what happened in my business um, when when I went independent, I took a lot of network uh, with me, a lot of friends um, and colleagues over the years. And they had reached out and they had a whole bunch of different questions for me on, you know, what is the best CMS tool to use? What are the best CRM? You know, what is this whole AI thing that's on the merge? T tell me about mobile apps. And, and I had the idea to um, start making video uh, answers to these questions because it was one of the things over email where it's like copy, paste, send, copy, paste, send. So eventually I, I just turned on the camera. I started recording videos. I posted it to YouTube. I had some success. But the headwinds and turbulence that I had from friends and family was like, why would anybody listen to you specifically? This is all available already online from, you know, other people's perspective or it's a best practices guide. Um, and, and I just kept making my videos. And I think I had maybe six weeks or eight weeks of what I like to think was just tumbleweeds. And uh, I just kept my head down. I, I basically was prepared to be bad at it long enough until I got good at it. And um, eventually I started to get more and more uh, people following my program. I had a whole bunch of people subscribe to my community. And then one day was what I call my tipping point where I had um, a pretty large agency reach out and want to do a corporate contract with their entire team. So keep your head down, just push forward. Usually if you have a gut feel, or if you have a good idea, um, it's only a very little bit of research today with all the tools that are available to see if there's an audience for it. And if there is, just go. Awesome. So I want to transition a little bit into e-commerce. Can you speak on the growth in the e-com space and the trajectory in the past decade? Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, I hate to go back to COVID, but COVID was gasoline for e-commerce. Um, you know, there's, it, I was funny, I was working on a, um, a graphic uh, earlier this morning for a client, the um, percentage of retail sales online prior to 2018, I believe, was somewhere around 10%, 12%. And then all of a sudden in like 18 months, it shot up to like 28%, which is a massive growth. The, the growth in just that 12 to 18 month period was greater than the combined growth of like 10 plus years before it. And I, I spent a career jumping up and down in a clown suit, trying to tell people like, hey, the thing that you guys do, you just need to be better at doing it online. And I worked, yeah. I'm, I go back early enough in like late 90s, early 2000s web dev days where websites were online catalogs with no transactional capability. 
And it's amazing to me how slow some of the laggards were to get out of this like online brochure, online catalog phase and get into actual online transactions and end-to-end and -end customer service. Um, that, that's one of the biggest jumps that you know, happened in my career. Um, now, as far as, you know, I say the last decade, but the, the crazy part about e-commerce is last week is different than this week because you know, there's so much emerging media, new technologies, AI has me absolutely fascinated and I've been following along. Um, you know, these, these website builders, AI website builders are kind of like a dime a dozen now. So, so I'm, I'm hit or miss on a lot of those, but I like to keep a finger on the pulse of everything that's going on so that I can stay abreast of, you know, um, a lot of the questions that I get asked are, what do I think of certain tools? So I have to have hands-on experience before I can speak intelligently to, uh, to what they look like. Fair enough. So in regards to the marketing side of e-commerce, what are the biggest pain points that you've seen? Um, I think that there's, a, there's an over-index of the population right now that think everything is pay-to-play. And I've seen so many people drag their heels when it comes to um, good value-driven content instead of let's just pay more money to get more clicks to our website. One of the biggest, I guess, mistakes that I've seen as far as the marketing piece goes is let's say I have a, a PPC budget of $10,000 a month, pay-per-click pay budget or search engine marketing. My, my online media budget is 10K a month. If you're driving people to a website, and just for easy math, let's say it's a dollar a click. So $10,000 gets you 10,000 clicks. If your conversion rate is only 1% or 2% and you're getting 100 to 200 conversions out of 10,000 visits, first look at how you would increase your conversion rate before you go to spend more money. Because every recommendation and a lot of the time you go to like, um, Google, Facebook, Meta, whatever, the, the, the representatives from those brands that will reach out to you, their recommendation is almost always spend more money. And they, they have the calculations in front of them. They're like, hey, I just want you to know if you spent $15,000 a month, this is what it would look like. Sure. But instead of doing that, what can you do to get more mileage out of the existing budget that you have and if you get that 2% conversion rate up to 3 or 4%, it's the same thing as if you left it alone at 2% and we're spending $20,000 a month. Like, Look at the triggers that are within your control first. A lot of the time, it's just basic human error. There were errors and omissions on the website. The analytics wasn't set up properly. Standard conversion rate tactics weren't applied. Like, um, I had a client once who... They, they were suffering from a very low conversion rate and they were wondering like, what is going on? Um, our analytics was showing people get all the way to the checkout page, but their, their conversion rate was still suffering. So when I took a look at their checkout page, they literally had Visa, MasterCard only. There was no form of digital payment. There was no like PayPal options, Stripe, uh, Apple Pay, Google Pay, like none of those things. I think all we did was like a two-click thing on their back end to, to allow um, digital payment. And their conversion rate went up like 16%. Uh, 
which which brought them from I mean sixteen percent percentage points, yeah. not not percentage yeah. points. It went up from like you know one percent or something like that to like one point two, one point one eight, some, something around that, that that mark. But that was like a, a two second fix. So what is what is a point two jump, a sixteen to twenty percent jump in conversion uh, percentage points? What is that worth to your business if you're spending ten thousand dollars a month in paid media? Look in, look in your own backyard before you go to external ways to, to try and just spend more money. 100%. That can be true in any industry. It's a lot of like the human error and people think their first thing is just, oh, I got to spend more money to scale my campaigns. It's so like you said, half, I mean, our biggest thing being a marketing firm in the B2B space, nobody knows how to set up the analytics properly. And 95% of the time, that's the biggest issue. Absolutely. And you know what, you, somebody somebody that's been doing this for a very long time, I can make the analytics say whatever you want them to say. So that's something that you need to be very, very um, aware of. Um, I had a client who ran a marketing campaign and the campaign was around um, acquisition and basically new eyeballs. So very, very senior leadership said, the purpose of this campaign is we wanna reach a net new audience and they were working with, I won't name names, but they were working with a shady agency at the time. And the agency shortened the um, cookie life. So basically what would happen, just, just for anybody that might be listening or watching that, that don't know the technical piece, um, once a device gets pixeled, they're considered a returning user up until the pixel expires, which is usually seven days, 30 days, whatever. You can make it whatever you want. So I think in this case, the business had a 30-day cookie life. And after 30 days, a, a, visit, a returning visitor would be considered a new customer again. So what this agency did, they took the 30-day cookie life and they shortened it to like a day. So if somebody, if I come in on Monday and then I go back on Wednesday or Thursday, I'm a different person every time I come back. And I saw the report and they had something like 99% new visitors. And immediately I knew that they had done something sketchy because you don't get 99% net new visitors. This is a company that's been around a long time. They're very well known. They have a very big budget. Um, people are going to their website in the, in the tens and hundreds of thousands. 99% net new is, is incorrect. So as soon as I saw that report, I did a deep dive. I found that they shortened the cookie life. I brought it to the client's attention and I just left it in their hands. Yeah. That's uh, <laughs> there's a lot of shady agencies and one of my bigger challenges, especially kind of in like the digital marketing online space, kind of the trend that's becoming and I'm a part of it. It's uh, there's a stigma around it. And for good reason, because a lot of people don't really have their client's best interest at heart. It's more, how can I make a quick buck off for you? 100%. It's probably my number one, um, uh, not, not complaint, but it's probably the number one grievance that people will have with me is even if it's a net new conversation, the first thing they'll go to is like, I don't think I have the budget to work with you. And I'm like, well, I, we haven't even talked about budget yet. And I try to be very, very value led value driven. Yeah. You need to get more value out of working with me than what you feel you paid me in return. And that's a win-win for everybody. Um, but it's, it's, it's few and far between. I've definitely seen a lot of these, what I'll call pop-up agencies that they, they will step over their mother for a quick buck. 
and and you just need to do your due diligence in vetting who you uh, who you work with. Hundred percent. So on the SEO side, since we personally don't deal with e-commerce very much in our clients, if if at all. In, outside looking in, it seems like SEO is an afterthought and the majority of the budget is spent on paid media. What are your thoughts on e-commerce brands focusing more on SEO as a long-term game plan? Assuming that your product is a product that you're going to stand behind, uh, it should be flipped upside down and it should be SEO first. Um, okay. If you're trying to just go on um, AliExpress and get on the latest drop shipping trend and see what's hot on Thieve or, or go on some you know fill in the blank social media platform TikTok, instagram whatever and see the latest thing that people are hopping on then that's going to be a three to six month trend so it's going to be very difficult to have a value driven or, or value led seo strategy around any product if every three to six months you're switching gears and you're hopping on the latest thing but if you're an actual business with an actual t- tangible product and you you know you stand behind this, you've been you've been doing it for years, um, SEO is paramount in that instance. And I think um, it, it you can't afford for it to be an afterthought anymore. For for a very long time, it was an afterthought. I remember I have I've had clients that like literally they're like, hey, could you guys come in and just like sprinkle some SEO on on this on this website? And I'm like, well, well, no, we can't because we have to change like we have to change the taxonomy of the URLs, and and we have to change your your image file names, and we have to do like all these things that if we were brought in before the site went live, we could have done. And there's no retroactive effort, and uh, it's definitely not something you can just come in and really do justice to after the fact. Got you. So. Also, how do you manage expectations? Because as we know, SEO is earned, not bought. But there's also like this gray area around SEO where it's similar to like marketing agencies. It has a stigma that people make it seem like, oh, give me two months so you can rank number one when that's not the case. It's often not the case. And it kind of goes back to what I was just talking about with analytics and the, um, the, the cookie window. You can make it look like anything you want to. If you're using a specific tool like SEMrush or Ahrefs or Moz or whatever your your tool of choice is, you can really drill down on specific metrics and say, "Hey, look, we got you more backlinks," or "Hey, we you know we got you um, a bunch of negative URLs like disavowed," or we went into Search Console and we really picked on three or four keywords and we, we, you know, got those to rank better. But when you look at a rising tide initiative to try and lift all boats, as far as SEO goes, what did you really do? Because you can't just hone in on one or two elements. You have to look at the technical SEO, which is the basic structure of the whole website. And that's what I was mentioning a moment ago from like URLs all the way down to your, your naming convention and all the um, metadata, schema tags, um, your product data, assuming you're selling products, and then the technical things would be all the back end, right? Like your, your standard 101 ABCs around titles, descriptions, headers, um, content, keywords, so on. Like, like all that stuff is still relevant today, but the, um, the, the, the thing that I'm gonna pick on 
is you can dupe some ignorant clients into thinking that you did way more than you actually did because you just, you just show them like part of the picture. So I try to be very, very transparent. I show like, here's a full report. And I, I have to explain it as a result because what the hell is domain authority to uh, an average Joe off the street? Like they, they might be a, a florist and they own a flower shop. They don't need to know what domain authority is as far as a, a website is concerned. So I show the whole picture. I explain it all in ABCs. Um, that, that way they have as much information as they're interested in. And I, I don't do death by presentation either. It's all like, it's just an appendix. It's a one page thing. And I'm like, here, this is what it is. If you have questions, I'll tell you what everything means, but be transparent. Don't, don't be scummy about it. hundred percent. So what's your, and for digital marketers and especially people on the come up, if they're younger like me, or if they're just starting out something along those lines, what's your career advice for those people? Uh, twofold. So one is if you're specific, if you're specifically interested in digital and e-commerce, you're going to struggle with any standardized course curriculum because it changes by the time the book's been printed. And that's something that, you know, when I was, when I was doing this in the late nineties, the, the, um, trajectory was more like a cruise ship, right? If I was learning how to code, which I, which I literally learned how to code, out of a paper textbook like this thick. <laughs> and I was, I was afforded that luxury because it didn't pivot nearly as quickly as it does now. But you can't read a, a, a book on like Python or Ruby or something nowadays and think that in a year's time, you, you can just, it'll be a, as applicable as it is right now. Everything is, it's not a cruise ship anymore, it's a speedboat. So I think that, um, there's, there's a much greater opportunity and an avenue for like self-learning and self-taught. Do it in online courses, do it in bits and bytes versus a one giant undertaking for a digital marketing um, course or e-commerce course. Standardized curriculums and syllabus will be outdated by the time you, you attend it. So that's, that's the first thing. The second thing, as far as your career trajectory goes, is find someone who's already done what it is that you're trying to do. I did this early in my career. Um, I just tapped on the shoulder of a VP that worked at a company I was working at. And I said, hey, is, would you mind um, if I had picked your brain 30 minutes a week? Like, I'll, I'll buy us lunch and let me sit down and just ask you some questions. Kind of just like this, like bounce questions off me. I'll answer them to the best of my ability. Bear in mind, it's a sample size of one. But if I am sitting in the very chair that you aspire to sit in one day, who better qualified than me, or in my case, this person, to ask standard business questions, um, general education, life practice, leadership management style, like there's a whole bunch of um, ways to approach this. But LinkedIn and a lot of online platforms can be your friend. If you type in, um, I'm going to make up a role and say like VP of finance. And you take the first 20 results that you get, especially if you have a common thread and it's like, Hey, aren't you, aren't you Keegan's friend? Or like, I know you, you're, you're networked, you're networked with Keegan. So I want to say like, Hey, um, I thought I would reach out. I'm, uh, you know, much more junior version of you. I'm interested in one day becoming VP of finance. Would you mind being a mentor? 
even just in the online space. You don't have to take anybody's time, um, take them away from home or anything like that. It can be a Zoom. It can be a phone call. Uh, a lot of people say yes. I, I opted into the mentor-mentee thing probably four years ago, um, and I've taken on about a dozen in that time. Um, and I don't, I mean, I don't feel any, uh, worse for wear. If, if anything, it's refreshing to stay on top of these types of questions because it makes you go back and have an, oh yeah, moment. And there's an adage of like, what better way to learn than to teach. And it keeps me current on a lot of, uh, a lot of emerging media and up and coming things, talking to people, you know, half my age that are interested in the digital and e-commerce space. At, at the same time with mentors too, for anybody listening that's newer or seeking out a mentor, it's a similar thing if a client's vetting a digital marketing agency, don't jump in head first because the people that you want to be, sometimes they're not the best people. And they're, I've personally heard horror stories of people help, mentors helping people build a firm or an agency and then kind of sweeping it out from underneath and let the adults take care of this. So also have your guard up at the same time. A hundred percent. And that's where LinkedIn comes in. It comes in handy because you immediately see um, that person's network. You also see what other people have to say as far as recommendations go. And if I knew that, um, you know, we have a common connection and you and I were friends, I can reach out and I can say, Hey, what do you, what do you think of Dave that I just found on LinkedIn? I see that you're connected with him. Is he a good person for me to ask some career questions to? And then you're like, Hey man, Dave is awesome. I worked with him for the last five years. He's a great guy. Well, now he's vetted by proxy of you. So I don't really have to worry about him kind of pulling the rug out from under me. For sure. So staying on top of that, um, what are the two things you think every digital marker, marketer should know and understand? Um, first, I would say table stakes for digital marketing is, is creating an environment of testing, creating a culture of testing. Um, I've worked with clients that were nothing short of um, ignorant and bulldozed their way through a <laughs> lot of digital marketing. Like, don't hire an expert and then tell them what to do. I think it was an old Steve Jobs quote. It was like, we hire smart people and get out of their way, right? So, so you wouldn't hire somebody to like, you know, do your landscaping or build your basement and be there with a hard hat on going, do it this way, <laughs> right? But, but I get that so, so often where people tell me, the language they think people will be searching for when it comes to their business. And then I actually go into the tools and the data and it, they're telling me that it's six when the data says it's half dozen. It's, it's similar, but it's different as far as um, online advertising or keyword optimization goes. So I think um, creating a culture of testing because I've been wrong professionally, like for a living, I'm wrong. So I throw my opinions out the window and I do what the data tells me. If it's A versus B versus C, great. The, the second thing I think is you have to be open to change. Um, digital marketing and digital in general is probably the most rapidly evolving um, landscape right now because the, the tool set that you used like a year ago can very quickly become um, either outdated or acquired, or you have to be very malleable to your client's environment. I've had ticketing systems that were completely different from one to the next. I've had CMS tools that are completely different from one to the next. You need to be 
fairly well versed and fairly broad. So you have to stay open. I'm not a fan of Microsoft, but when I work with a client and they're like, hey, we, we're in a SharePoint environment and we use all Microsoft tools. We're on Teams instead of like Zoom or any of that stuff. I'm just like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> sounds good, you know? And, and that's why I have um, every one of those tools installed and I keep myself at least proficient in them enough to operate. So, so create a culture of testing. Don't be um, too opinionated. Do what the data tells you. And then be open to change because these platforms um, are coming at you fast and furious. With the testing thing, that is, you're a thousand percent right. For me, I'm hoping that I'm right 5% of the time because that's the campaign that we're going to scale. It's like, I want to be wrong. I want to find the winning creative, the winning campaign. And a lot of people, it's it seems like don't want to be wrong. They're perfectionist. They want to be right all the time. In this space, that's not what you are. And you want, if you're right all the time, let me know because I want to hire you. I'm looking I, for that person. I don't even wager a guess anymore. I used to have yeah. clients be like, which one do you think will work better? I'm like, <laughs> no idea. I'll tell you in two weeks. And, and I, I had a very um, fortunate in, in inside circle in my career in the sense that I was managing eight-figure um, paid search budgets for, you know, maybe for a 10-year span or, or more. And that allowed me to fail fast, uh, fail often, and fail forward. Like nobody bat an eye if I put a $100,000 PPC budget to the test over a 72-hour period just so I could learn something. And I can afford to be wrong nine times out of 10 with a $100,000 budget if it's teaching me and on the 10th time, I get a 10 to one return that pays for the nine tests that got me there. And that, that was something that I um, adopted, you know, quite early. We were running 30, 40, 50 simultaneous AAB tests, split tests, uh, multivariate testing, um, and, and a very quick cadence for somebody if you're interested in learning uh, or, or doing this is I put three variants in the ring together. I have an A versus B versus C. After an amount of time where you have actionable data, and it's going to depend for you, you know, if you have a smaller website, it might be 30 days before you, you have a clear winner and a clear loser. Uh, if you have a popular website, you might know in 48 hours or, or a week. But once you've identified a clear winner and a clear loser, you kill the loser, you clone the winner, you make another subtle tweak, and now you have a new variant. So now you have A versus B versus D, and you put them back in the ring, and they run again for another week or 30 days or whatever it is. And if you adopt a strategy like this, you will have your top performing ad creative in the ring all year long, and, and it'll help you depending on the business you're in. You have... Um, shoulder seasons, you have seasonal um, ebbs and flows. This type of, a, of an approach to multivariate testing will keep your top performing ad um, in the ring with competitors all year round. Because what works in December might not work in July. So, you, you know, keep, keep testing. The, the biggest mistake I see is when people have one cop, one version of an ad running and it's just pointing to their homepage and they're just throwing more and more money at it. You know, there's there's so many things you can test. You can test the headline, a description, 
um, a call to action, any kind of button. You can test creative. You can test the destination URL, the landing page. There's a lot of things to test. So, so hop to it. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, Mike. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. This was, in my opinion, one of the better episodes that we've had recently. Um, you gave away a ton of value. And again, I really appreciate you coming on today. Awesome. I'm happy I could help. Hopefully someone took some value from it. Thank you for having me. No worries.